Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Simple Tax, the friendly and fast way to file your tax return. Filing your own return is easy. Simple Tax's award-winning design guides you every step of the way, and they are pay what you want. You get every feature they offer at a price that you believe is fair. There is no catch, and you can even choose to pay nothing. See why Canadians love Simple Tax. Go to simpletax.ca slash CanadaLand. And this episode is brought to you by Sonos. I have a Sonos One speaker in my house right now for complete hands-free control of your music, of your podcasts, for incredibly good sound quality. I had forgotten what a difference it makes to listen to podcasts and music with beautiful speakers. And Sonos is offering listeners of this show 10% off of one order. And that covers just about as much as you're going to want to buy from Sonos. Your system is modular. You can add speakers and you'll get 10% off of purchases up to $2,500. That's a lot of speaker that you'll get 10% off of. Use the promo code Canada 10, that's Canada 10, when you go to Sonos.com. Hey, a quick note before today's show. Last week, we released our annual transparency report. And we received a lot of online criticism for it on the issue of company diversity. Some of that criticism was lacking context, and that led a lot of people to arrive at inaccurate conclusions. But much of it was totally valid. And I am taking it seriously, and we are doing something about it starting this week. 
there's a lot more I would like to discuss about this, a lot more detail I'd like to get into. But there are other people on this team, and this has an impact on each and every one of them. And they need to be included in this process as we work together as a company to improve some things and be the organization that we aspire to be. So more on this to come. For now, I want you to know this matters to me, and I am doing something about it. Here's the show. Ah, it seems like it was just yesterday when Canada Land received its very first legal threat. Dear sirs, the allegations being made about our clients are false. We have reviewed materials that we believe will discredit the individuals we believe to be your sources. In the event that a story is published, we will take immediate steps to bring a defamation claim on behalf of our client. In addition, Mr. Brown's email is malicious and defamatory. We are requesting that Mr. Brown stop, and failure to do so will leave us no choice but to take legal action. Then, a year later, there was this gem. Dear sir, we understand from your email that you intend to publish quote-unquote allegations regarding our client. Any repetition by you in a podcast of such statements, whether represented as allegations or quote-unquote unproven or otherwise, is defamatory. There is no public interest in false allegations. There is no quote-unquote other side to this story. There is no quote-unquote story. If you proceed with publication, it will not be excused. And then just last week, we got another one, ending with the words, should you write and publish this reckless story, you will be proceeding at your own peril. But here's the thing. None of them sued. The threat of libel hangs over every newsroom, over every news story. And it's not just that reporters are afraid of libeling someone, are afraid of printing malicious, defamatory, false accusations about them. We are afraid of being accused of that, of being sued for that, even when we're right. In some ways, you'd rather be wrong. You'd rather get it wrong because then you can just correct your story and apologize. And often it doesn't go much further than that. But if you find yourself in the unenviable position of being absolutely sure that your story about them is solid, while they are absolutely sure that it is not, or if they just want to appear that way and can afford to appear that way, well, buckle up. Every time we publish, we take this risk. And it's not just a professional risk. Yes, it is a professional risk. You are laying your reputation, your credibility on the line with every story. And all it takes is one mistake, one libel ruling against you. And that can cost you your career. But it can actually cost you a lot more than that because when you get sued for libel, the whole construct that our society is based on of the limited liability corporation, it will not protect you. You can work for the CBC, you can work for CTV, and you will still be personally named in the libel lawsuit. This is why Ezra Levant has his house in his wife's name. I mean, sometimes your company might have your back. Their libel insurance will cover you. Sometimes it won't. Some companies protect everyone they publish. Canada Land protects everybody who we publish. Some only protect their staffers. Freelance journalists, not covered. So this is a risky business. But maybe it's not as risky as we act like it is. That fear of libel that hangs over our newsrooms, that libel chill that stops a lot of stories from getting reported, how justified is it in practice? Those letters I read to you from powerful people's lawyers... They were terrifying, but they were bluffs. Well, the first two were bluffs. I don't know how the third one's going to play out. The truth is that most libel cases don't go to court. 
Some of them don't even actually start. Patrick Brown, of course, dropped out of the Ontario PC leadership race to pursue his libel suit against CTV for defaming him, correct? Well, last time I checked, Patrick Brown had not actually sued CTV. He served them with a notice of libel, which is sort of the first step. He's reserving a right to sue them. But as of the time that I'm recording this, he has not sued them. People often don't. To find out why not, today I'm going to speak to two media lawyers. And they're not even going to charge me for it. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Erica Myers, Jenna Stanley, Sunil Sarai, Carmen J. Price, Peter Sikowski, Dana Holtby, Jonathan Levstein, and Jennifer Hunter. Hi, I'm Jennifer, a lawyer in downtown Toronto. I've been a fan of Canada Land since the very beginning, but became a supporter because of the critical eye it turns in the Canadian media and government. In particular, the constant need to be a cheerleader for all things Canadian or the insistence on taking a Canada-focused approach to all international stories. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks, freelancers, small business owners. Tax season is here. There's a good chance that many of you are trying to dig your way out from underneath a pile of receipts and spreadsheets. Do yourself a huge favor. Stop digging before you completely disappear under that abyss of paperwork. Go and check out FreshBooks cloud accounting software. Not only will it save you a ton of time and stress, it might actually change the way you feel about dealing with your taxes. Whether you hire an accountant to prepare your tax returns or if you do it yourself... FreshBooks makes it stupid simple. It is ridiculously easy to use, and there is a 30-day free trial for listeners of this podcast when you go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand and enter CanadaLand in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Thank you, FreshBooks. 
Finally, compatibly, this episode is brought to you by Simple Tax. There are different options out there when it comes to software that lets you prepare your own tax return. There are none that are as simple and easy and straightforward to use as Simple Tax, and there's certainly none that are pay what you can. See for yourself why 99% of people rate Simple Tax four stars or higher. Just answer a few simple questions, autofill your slips with data directly from the CRA, and let the optimizer find you your maximum refund guaranteed. Go to simpletax.ca slash CanadaLand. That is simpletax.ca slash CanadaLand. And hey, maybe you too will have fun. You could have fun. Maybe it'll just be a lot easier to do your taxes this year. My name is Justin Safiani. I'm a lawyer and litigator at Stockwoods Barristers in Toronto, a small litigation boutique. My practice includes acting for plaintiffs and defendants in defamation cases. So my name's Adam Wygodney. I'm a lawyer at Burko Udla Farrell Das, which is also a litigation boutique in Toronto. I have a general commercial litigation practice that also includes, amongst other things, defamation. I've acted for plaintiffs uh, primarily in defamation suits. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. Okay, so I've been threatened a bunch. Both me and Canada Land have been threatened. And usually the way it goes is you get a story to the point where you go to the person who's being accused of something and you give them a chance to respond. And that's when I have been threatened. I've been threatened by Jean Gameshi. Even if I were to continue to ask questions, I was told that uh, I'd be sued by his attorney. Um, being threatened by Marineland, being threatened by a certain billionaire newspaper publishing family, being threatened by CBC executives, CBC broadcasters. Sometimes it's an implied threat where they say the questions you're asking are libelous. And as soon as that word libel is, is thrown around, it feels like a threat. Sometimes a threat is overt. If you pursue this, I will sue you for libel. I will take you to court. None of them have actually gone through with it. In each of those cases, the story got published. In none of those cases have I been sued. Why would these powerful people threaten but not pursue a libel or defamation suit against a journalist? I mean, in a sense, Jesse, I don't think it's that different from other types of litigation. I do some commercial litigation as well. It's not unusual or uncommon for people to make threats of litigation in other contexts too, and it may be misguided, but it's a at least a perceived way for people to try and exert influence or leverage to get what they want. Now, I hear what you're saying, and I think not only in your case, but in a case of a lot of media outlets, threatening litigation is not usually the best way to achieve the objective of getting a story pulled. Sometimes it is, but usually it isn't. Uh, but that doesn't mean that people don't have that kind of instinctive reaction of, uh, well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to wave the hammer and maybe they'll back off. And that happens in other types of commercial litigation, too. The other thing you have to remember is that truth is a complete defense to an action for defamation, whether it's slander or, or libel. So if that individual were to pursue litigation and sue for libel or slander or more generally defamation, it would be open to a defendant to plead, well, the statements were true. And now all of a sudden, you've got discovery rights via via the plaintiff, where, you know, if, for example, it's uh, you'd reported on a he said, she said type story, they would then have to turn over any communications with the person, some of which may be embarrassing, 
which they might not want in the public record uh, if it were to go to trial. And so that's one issue is if it's substantially true, that would be a defense. And even if it's ultimately proven not to be true, there are all these steps within the litigation process that many people would consider rather invasive in terms of their privacy, especially if the allegations relate to people's intimate private lives. The other factor would be simply the economics of litigation. Mm -hmm. So in Ontario and in much of the common law provinces of Canada, and I I won't speak to Quebec because it's a different system and I don't have sufficient knowledge. But generally, the rule is loser pays. So if you sue someone and it goes to trial, the loser is going to be ordered to pay costs to the winner. Mm -hmm. But it's not 100% that's awarded for policy reasons. Typically, you could expect to see a cost award of about 60% of legal fees. That means 40% of your legal fees that you're out of pocket on are not recoverable. Both of you had interesting information there. I guess to the specific question as to why you would threaten within your answer was the reason to stop the story. You threaten, I will sue you in the hopes that that'll be a preventative, that'll be a, that's a threat that will stop the story from getting published. And then why you would not pursue that action once the story is published. Adam, you pointed out well, if the whole point is you're trying to stop something from getting published about you, once it's published, that's out. And as a result of pursuing the libel claim, the process by which you would prove that it is not true would be one where all of the information would be shared publicly in court, potentially. Correct. And in addition to that, instead of having a one-off article that's published and then forgotten by the time the next news cycle comes around, you're now generating all these events that could be reported on in the course of the litigation. This happened in the litigation. The allegations are getting repeated in the press. And from the standpoint of somebody who feels that they've been defamed, they might actually be exacerbating the issue and drawing more publicity to the allegations rather than if they simply were to make a statement dismissing it as, you know, untrue, inaccurate, the work of a crank, etc. From a plaintiff's perspective or a potential plaintiff's perspective, it is really a bit of a double-edged sword. But on the one hand, a statement of claim, if you actually pull the trigger on litigation, gives you an opportunity, a very protected opportunity to tell your alleged version of events. But on the other hand, I think Adam's absolutely right that it can add more fire to the news cycle, right? It's another reportable event. Mm -hmm. Uh, It can generate even further reportable events. And if the objective is just to make the story go away, it may not achieve that objective. I'll speak about this from the journalist's point of view. It is so tense, nerve-wracking, it could take months to get to the point where you break the story, the initial, because you are assuming all the liability. CTV, in pursuing the story that brings us here today, the story about Patrick Brown, assumed a lot of liability in breaking that news. Should Patrick Brown go ahead with a lawsuit against CTV, as he said he's going to do, then all of that liability is off. Once it plays out in the courts, every other news organization can report on public court documents without any fear of being sued, right? That's all part of the public record. Correct. Once it's an open court file, as long as you're reporting fairly what's in the file, that's protected. And building on that, what you say in your pleadings, so in your statement of claim 
or in your statement of defense or when you're testifying in court, that's subject to absolute privilege. So you can say whatever you want and you cannot then be sued for defamation. Uh huh. So Justin, your point would be that on the side of the plaintiff, Patrick Brown would have an opportunity to tell his full side of the story, but that goes both ways. There's probably a lot of stuff that in any case, when a journalist is reporting, actually we know because Canada looked into this, they had another accuser that they didn't use. There's all kinds of materials that corroborate that were not part of the CTV story against Patrick Brown. But if they are forced to prove that they did their jobs diligently as journalists, all of that stuff could come into it. So they might have tons of emails and photographs, all kinds of information that could further damage Patrick Brown's reputation that would then be fair game for everybody to report on if they were forced to defend themselves should he take it to court. That's right. There's also one more recent development in Ontario law that is important to keep in mind in these types of cases, which is the anti-slap legislation. What's that? Explain that. Slaps are strategic lawsuits against public participation, um, basically lawsuits that are designed to muzzle or gag people uh, into not criticizing the powerful. That's how they've kind of um, historically been conceived. And Ontario recently enacted a law that allows defendants faced with different types of lawsuits, but defamation in particular, to very early on in an action, way before a trial would happen, to bring a motion in court to have the whole lawsuit essentially dismissed. Now, it's a little uncertain how these anti-slap lawsuits are going to apply to media companies. And there's actually a case before the Court of Appeal in Ontario where this is at issue. It hasn't been decided yet. But it's at least a real possibility that media defendants can use this anti-slap legislation. They don't have to wait until trial. Within a few months of being served with a statement of claim and a defamation action, they could not only have the whole thing dismissed, but seek a very high amount of costs against the plaintiff for bringing what the court may find to be a slap. Okay. And to break that down, very common circumstance that I've encountered in newsrooms is where you feel like you've got a story that could survive a libel suit and your editor or the publisher says, I don't really give a damn if we could win a libel suit. I don't want to be sued. This could take years and hundreds of thousands of dollars to fight this. Why even go there? Let's write about somebody else. And the anti-slap legislation, as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I understand that this actually was a consequence of Marineland pursuing lawsuits that were instilling that kind of libel chill, that here is a way in which a media organization or an individual could very early in that process before hundreds of thousands of dollars and years are spent say, this is obviously a meritless lawsuit. Uh, Your Honor, let's call it a slap and get rid of it before it costs us more time and money and gums up your system and my news organization. I I mean, I think that's broadly right. I think looking at the history of the legislation, at least some of the debates I've looked at, are focused a little bit more on, you know, the blogger or somebody who's in a small startup or someone who's writing perhaps a community newspaper, people that don't have resources. So it's a little bit uncertain how far courts will go in applying it to what people may still kind of think of as well-resourced media defendants. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a very good argument to be made, and it has been made, that major media companies, everything from the blogger to a mainstream publication, should have the benefit of these laws on their side. And it's certainly a powerful arsenal against libel chill, because as you say, instead of waiting years and years, even if you will get your vindication at trial, these motions are typically supposed to be brought within a few months of a statement of claim. In fact, under the legislation that was passed, 
there's a requirement that a motion to dismiss under Section 137, one of the Courts of Justice Act, is to be heard within 60 days. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and that's an eternity in the news cycle, but I guess that's fast. Which is long. overnight in litigation. Yeah. Now, okay, so a lot of these threats are posturing, I guess. They're baseless threats, but some of them do go through. Like Conrad Black did sue Bruce Livesey and his own book publisher for things that Bruce Livesey wrote in an investigative book about Conrad Black. John Furlong did sue journalist Laura Robinson when she reported in the Georgia Strait about the many, many, many indigenous people who say that he abused them as children. And interestingly, he sued the journalist and not the publication. Those are just two examples of lawsuits that were filed as these people were protesting their innocence, but later fizzled out. They dragged on for years, and these same public figures who were saying, I'm going to clear my name, these are lies, I'll see you in court, eventually said, well, I don't really care about this lawsuit, I feel I've been vindicated, or this is taking up too much time, when the headlines moved on. I guess my question is, to what extent do you feel like libel and defamation law is exploited or used to perform innocence? Because like that's what an innocent person would do is that they would say, I'll see you in court for defamation. But when they're up against these strong disincentives that we've identified, they actually do not want to essentially put themselves on trial. Yeah. And speaking generally and not about those individuals, is that a common thing for the same bluster of I'm pursuing this to the end and then it seems to fizzle out? Because that's almost a cliche I'm aware of that that happens. Well, emotions tend to fade over time with everything in life. So- you know, it happens in relationships. It happens in litigation as well. So somebody very philosophical approach who is very gung ho at the outset, after they've spent time reviewing documents for discoveries that they've had to miss work to do, spent times in examinations for discoveries, got in bills from their lawyers. Yeah, that initial you know eagerness can fade pretty quickly. A lawyer once said to me, it might have even been you, sane people don't sue for libel. Well, no, what it was me in a conversation. What I said is in every defamation suit, there's often at least one, if not more than one, irrational actor. Okay. <laughs> I, which I, I cleaned it up for you. <laughs> which keeps it in, them interesting. So it, it's what makes it an interesting area to litigate. You know, Defamation claims are not unique in this respect. I think you've identified correctly that a lot of people start them and then they fizzle out. I would say the same about virtually any type of litigation. Um, People get hot to trot. They sue. It doesn't cost a lot to file a statement of claim. You know, a few hours of lawyer's time and 150 bucks at the counter gets you uh, a paragraph document with a seal on it that you can wave around. After that is when things start to get real, both, uh, as Adam said, in terms of fees, but also in terms of in a defamation case, the reputational risk that you were going to face, whether it's by way of one of these anti-slap motions where there's going to be an airing out and you're going to have to put your best foot forward, or whether it's by way of an eventual actual trial on the merits uh, where everything is going to be fully aired and it's going to be, to your earlier point, Jesse, covered day in and day out if it's an interesting case by a whole stable of media organizations. And the reality is, is you never know what the outcome is going to be until you get that decision from the judge. So if you're going to court looking for vindication, there's a risk that the judge hears all the evidence and then writes up a decision saying, I find as a matter of fact that Mr. X did in fact do ABC with Ms. Y. 
it becomes a trial about the allegations themselves and not about the defamation. And then you're not just being accused by some supposedly sleazy journalist, but a court of law has said you did it. It depends. If the defendant is pleading truth as their defense to a claim in defamation, yeah. then yeah, you're going to have a trial of the underlying events and facts that you know the plaintiff is saying were reported falsely. Yeah. Right. And the defendant is saying... It's an accurate report. It actually happened. Now, if other defenses are raised, you might not get into a trial of the underlying issues if the statement was made on a privileged occasion. So say an occasion of qualified privilege. Right. There's one more thing that um, that kind of distinguishes defamation suits from more traditional or other forms of commercial litigation, which is the damages at the end of the day the money to be recovered, even if a judge finds in your favor or a jury finds in your favor, are at least traditionally pretty modest. So, you know, whereas a lot of litigation kind of has an emotional trigger that can then kind of morph into a rational kind of cost-benefit analysis yeah. in a commercial case where it's all about money. In defamation, if the emotional trigger fades and you're left with the cost-benefit analysis, not only for reputational reasons, but for dollars and cents reasons, it really might not make sense to see it through. Because even if you're successful and your reputation is vindicated, um, in a lot of these cases, damages are somewhere between kind of fifty dollars and $100,000, which may sound like a lot. But even if you get costs in your favor to the traditional kind of 50 or 60% Adam was talking about, if you're in a, a couple of week trial, you may not come out of that with any upside. In, in the forty percent, it could easily be a hundred thousand. It can easily exactly. eat that up. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second because there is this conception, and I, I don't know as many lawyers as I do journalists. I certainly hear this from a lot of journalists that the libel laws in Canada are tough on journalists, way tougher than in the states. That in the states they got freedom of, of speech, and that gives journalists the ability to say anything they want. And here in Canada, it's way tougher and the standards are higher. But then I see that Gawker has a ruling penalty of $140 million after they run this Hulk Hogan sex tape with Peter Thiel, you know, backing the whole damn thing. But these monstrous rulings seem to happen with some regularity in the States. And here in Canada, as you say, I'm not aware of, I think once I read about a $200,000 one, it seems like the actual risk that journalists take in doing their jobs is just in a dollars and cents level, way lower, like by an order of magnitude lower. So is this just a mythology of Canadian journalists that it's expensive to report the news here, that the risk is higher? Or, you know, I know there are differences in the law itself, but when you add it all up, it strikes me as strange that we're so timid here. It's difficult to answer that for a number of reasons. So both in Canada and in the States, defamation laws tend to be at the provincial or the state level. I don't recall offhand where the Gawker decision came out of. Some states tend to be more protective of people's reputations than others. So I think California, because of its ties to Hollywood, it tends to be more protective. It's not unheard of for people to jurisdiction shop. Yeah. Uh, so it just generally makes it difficult to do an assessment like that because you're just going off anecdotes as opposed to, you know, hard numbers and parsing the data on, you know, the decisions out of the different jurisdictions and, you know, is there a variance or not? On the actual structure of what you need to do to prove defamation, there's no question that 
the U.S. is a is a more media friendly jurisdiction, right? Here, uh, defamatory words are presumed to be false. In the U.S., a plaintiff has to prove that they're false. Uh-huh. Uh, here. There's no need for a plaintiff to prove malice in the states. If you're a public figure, plaintiffs do have to prove actual malice, which is a very high standard to meet. Not just that you're defamed, but you were defamed by somebody who is maliciously out to get you. That's right. I mean, in terms of the structure of what you need to do to show defamation, um, I I think the U.S. is generally more friendly. And when it comes to damages, I mean, one of the defining features of those cases where you see the high damage awards. And I mean, the Gawker case was, I think it was technically kind of an invasion of privacy rather than defamation, but it was this jury trial that you get these multi-million dollar awards. In Canada, jury trials for civil cases like defamation, although they are available, they're quite rare. Mm -hmm. Typically, they just don't happen. And I'm not sure exactly all of the reasons for that. Maybe it's just part of our kind of litigation culture, but you don't get juries looking at these types of cases. It's typically decided by judges, not always, but usually. Uh, And you're right that the range of damages in Canadian defamation cases are pretty modest. I mean, the highest one on record, I think, still is the Hill and Church of Scientology case from Supreme Court now going on decades ago. And that was, I think, a $1.6 million judgment. And that, I think, still stands as the high watermark in a defamation case. The one thing that is changing that, though, and it'll be interesting to see how this impacts the kind of economics of defamation cases, are instances of cyber libel. And courts have kind of looked at the fact that defamation happens online, that it you know lives in this different form than traditional news media, and they've been willing to award higher damages on that basis. There's a recent case from our Court of Appeal here in Ontario where Uh, And it was basically a dispute between business partners, and the court upheld a $700,000 damages award in that case, which is really quite high. But why would the cyber nature of that? I mean, I was told the opposite, that if it's online, you can change it or take it down in a way that, uh, you know, once you've published newspapers and spread them around, it's written in ink, it's solid. You know, is it the fact that the cyber stuff goes everywhere in the world? Is that the... Correct. I see. Bringing this back to the example of uh, CTV versus Patrick Brown. And Adam, this is with reference to you talking about truth as a defense that, you know, you can just say, well, it's not defamation because it's true. There's another defense. Um, A lot of people think that CTV is really in serious trouble. And I see this on social media quite a bit. People saying, well, we know that they got a very important fact wrong. We know that one of these accusers who is reported as having been 18 at the time of these alleged incidents, it's actually 19. CTV is in real trouble now. I don't think that people have that straight because there is a provision, a defense against a libel claim that allows journalists to be wrong. Can you tell us a bit about Grant versus Torstar and the responsible communication defense? So if the journalist is, you know, taken steps to reasonably verify the information and the allegations are published as allegations, right, that this person claims that X occurred, as opposed to publishing it as X occurred, period, full stop, then that can provide a defense to a claim in defamation. My understanding is that what this lets me do is if I can demonstrate that maybe I got something wrong, but when I published that story, I didn't know it was wrong. And I gave you a chance to respond to it. And I took reasonable steps to verify it. And, and this one might get CTV in trouble. I gave you enough time 
though I don't know how much time to respond, then it doesn't matter that what I published is wrong. I did my best. So I think that's fair. What you publish also has to be on a matter of public interest, but that is quite broadly conceived. Um, I think you've kind of fairly summarized the key factors. I mean, the devil in these cases is often in the details, right? So you may give somebody an opportunity to respond, but how long, as you say, do they have to respond? And there is no kind of bright line rule on that. Is that just because Grant versus Torstar is so new? I mean, I know that the Arthur Kent versus Postmedia case Don Martin said, I did ask for a response, and I think they found, well, you didn't ask hard enough. You didn't give them enough time. You didn't make enough efforts. You just like threw an email to some public-facing email address. You weren't in good faith. And I guess you got a couple of things there. How much time did you give and how hard did you try? Uh, I've had other journalists say to me, oh, three days. That's the industry standard. Give them three days. In some news cycles, that's impossible. You know, the story is going to be dead by then and the public interest isn't served. So, like, is this just that we don't have those precedents yet? I think part of the difficulty is there's not a huge body of case law since Grant and Torstar, which, you know, again, going by legal timelines is relatively recent, although we're coming up on a decade now. The other issue is, I mean, I think it's difficult to set a rule that'll fit all situations, right? I mean, to your point, three days being an eternity. I mean, in some situations, giving someone three days to respond to a very detailed and intricate set of allegations you've been working on for years and years may be you know, totally reasonable or maybe not even enough time. But in other cases where news is about to break and you got to get the story out there, three days may not be workable at all. So the context in which the story is being reported, I think, makes it difficult to establish kind of a clear guidepost for how long you can give somebody to respond. You have to look at what's reasonable in the circumstances. I mean, if you're talking about an election cycle story, you're going to be coming up to a candidate and telling them about accusations against them. Three days is three days for them to go into their war room, come up with counter narratives, find character witnesses. You know, first of all, you're going to lose your story. They're going to come with their defense before you even have a chance to do the story. And the public is going to get spun three different ways. You know, are you serving the public if you wait three days? So I, I, I guess we just don't know yet. Yeah. Well, and I don't think you're ever going to get some bright line rule. Like yeah. The court in almost every case is going to look at the facts of the case. What was the story? What are the allegations? If the allegations relate to something that happened a long time ago, where in order to do a proper response, the person might have to retrieve records from storage, that takes time. Yeah. And especially if they let the reporter know when they're asked for comment and they say, we want to respond, it's going to take us some time to get these documents. And then the reporter goes and publishes it anyway. It's if they were asking for what in the circumstances would be a quote unquote reasonable amount of time, that's what the issue is going to be. That's right. And that didn't happen in this case. They didn't say, can you give us another day to respond? Given everything you're telling me, we have this new responsible communication defense, which is not just there for journalists, by the way, anyone can use that defense, which really I think does change the balance in journalists' favor and communicators' favor. We have, at least in this province, anti-slap legislation. You would think that there would be a responsive shift in the tone of the journalism and we would have more of an aggressive press to pursue stories that they previously had not. My casual analysis of the scene is that that is not the case. 
And I wonder how much that has to do with money. I mean, Grant versus Torstar, there were these cases in the past where the CBC or the Toronto Star would actually pursue cases where they could set precedents or they would intervene in cases where they were always looking for opportunities to extend what the press could cover and what rights and protections the press had. You put these new legal instruments that journalists have up against the fact that we've never had less money before. We've never had less war chests to actually fight for these precedent-setting cases, and we've never had less resource just to pursue stories. I mean, you know, there's so many things that aren't getting covered. Well, why don't you just pursue the one that you're not going to get sued for? I think the difficulty is what is often referred to as the file drawer effect. So at least I certainly don't know, are more stories getting spiked or fewer stories getting spiked now? Because I don't have a baseline from before the legislation was introduced and before the Grant Torstar decision as to what stories the media did not run. But that's the data that you would need in order to do the analysis to actually determine, has there been a positive or a deleterious effect on reporting? That's it right there. We don't know the news that hasn't been reported. Exactly. In your professional experience, are you seeing less of a willingness on the part of news organizations to actually fight? To Adam's point, it's a little bit difficult to say. I mean, certainly in an era where as there's shrinking budgets and litigation costs are only going up, that is a factor that militates against or at least in favor of thinking very hard before committing to a piece of litigation. Having said that, and going back to something we said at the very beginning, you know, writing a letter threatening a lawsuit typically is not a great way to make a news story go away, at least in my experience. And, you know, your experiences may be different. And hopefully, I think one big thing that will impact this is the recent spate of anti-slap cases that we're waiting on the Court of Appeal to kind of weigh in on. And if those cases come out favorable to, I mean, not only media companies, but anybody who is going to publish something online and uh, potentially face the risk of one of these lawsuits, I think it'll give a very powerful tool and a cost-effective tool, just as importantly, to shut this kind of litigation down in its earliest stages in a way that doesn't require years and years of resources on the way to an eventual defamation trial. And and there's other variables as well. The culture of litigation in the province has changed significantly. The courts are very much more in favor of doing earlier interventions. Yeah. So from what you're both telling me, a lot of your time is spent, somebody comes in, they're furious with what was published about them. You might think that that's a good day for a lawyer. Here comes a lot of billable hours, but you spend a lot of your time talking them down from that ledge and saying, let's think this through and talking people out of using your services for prolonged periods of time. And on the other end of it, if you're representing the media company, good luck to you if your source of income is getting paid by Canada's news media and their (laughs) their dwindling assets. And I understand both your practices. This is like not your main gig doing media law. I know you're lawyers and I don't want to insult you by suggesting that you have hearts, but do you do this kind of stuff as like a labor of love? I mean, the meeting I just was at that made me late to attend here today, we just sat the clients down and like you had just said, and you've got a claim here, but do you really want to spend this amount of money the next two to three years of your life dealing with this? You know, we're very happy to take it on, but we'd rather see you keep your money and use it for your family. 
but that's just me and our culture and where we are. I find the area of law dealing with defamation extremely interesting. And I mean, I think there's two different situations you have to keep, at least in my mind, distinct when you're dealing with media organizations or people more broadly, startups or what have you, reporting on matters of public interest. I've always been very interested in free expression, access to open courts, and ensuring that we do the things necessary that I that I think are critical to maintaining a democracy with a free press. Okay. Last question. Yes or no answer. Will the Patrick Brown lawsuit, if he ever files it, go to trial? I don't have sufficient information to properly answer that, but statistically, most lawsuits that are filed do not go to trial. That was like 83 words. <laughs> I'll say no. Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That is your Canada Land Show. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. We also have a Facebook page. You can hit like on that. There is a new episode of Commons this Tuesday. You can find our new medical podcast, DDX, at figureone.com slash DDX. This show was produced by Ali Graham. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a campside media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.